welcome to episode six of Teen Screen Feminism's series on teen pregnancy and film. I'm your host, Dr. Athena Bellis. Just as a content note for today's episode, in this episode I mention pregnancy, assisted reproductive technologies, postnatal depression, and abortion. I'm not going to discuss these topics in graphic detail, but listener discretion is advised, and as always, spoilers for the films under discussion also abound. So in the last episode, we were looking at pregnancy in 1970s horror, and this time we're moving into the 1980s and a whole new genre, the romantic comedy. The film that we're looking at today is For Keeps, sometimes also known as Maybe Baby, and it was made in 1988, directed by John Avildsen, who directed a lot of classics, actually. He directed The Karate Kid and also Rocky. The film also stars Molly Ringwald as Darcy, and Darcy is this high-achieving high school student with ambitions to become a journalist. And when Darcy falls pregnant to her boyfriend Stan, who is played by Randall Battenkoff, these plans are thrown into disarray. They mutually decide on an abortion, but they don't end up going through with it. Instead, they decide to get married and raise the baby together. Now, this element of the storyline might be familiar to those of you who tuned into episode four on the film Blue Denim, which similarly sees a couple decide on having an abortion and then not going through with it. Similar to what happens in Blue Denim, the parents are totally furious with them both, and the couple has to fend for themselves with no parental support, very little money, and a kind of derelict apartment that they can barely afford. Darcy and Stan are seen struggling with their newfound roles as live-in spouses and parents, and they make a lot of mistakes. They end up hurting each other along the way before deciding to break up. And the struggles that get depicted in this film are significant. You know, Darcy even is shown suffering from postnatal depression, which is actually not even named in the film as that, but it shows that she, you know, has this inability to get out of bed. She mentions that her birth experience was traumatic and she initially lacks an emotional bond with her baby. But eventually, of course, because this is a romantic comedy, they reunite, they grow into their romantic relationship and their responsibilities as parents to their child. And the problems that I've mentioned get fixed with relative ease. And this was noted in a New York Times review written by Janet Maslin in 1988, and she wrote, The problems created by adolescent pregnancy and early marriage are indeed set forth here, but they are handled with all too remarkable ease. Its subject is nominally daring, but in spite of that, for keeps proceeds with an amazing degree of caution. And that's the end of the quote. So the 1980s are really quite fascinating time for representations of teen pregnancy because during this period there was a lot of discourse around a so-called epidemic of teen pregnancy. The reality though was that teen pregnancy rates were lower 
than they had been in 20 years in the US. And indeed, they were declining, as Wanda Pillow's research shows in the book Unfit Subjects, which is an incredible book, and I highly recommend it. So what this kind of reveals is an adult fear, a kind of moralizing panic during this period that isn't necessarily related to the reality of what is happening to teenagers. But these stories about epidemics are so potent and so anxiety-inducing and also very conveniently reaffirming of the need to control teenage girls, particularly teenage girls, through various social institutions and parental practices. So perhaps that is why this story sticks, even in the face of quite clear evidence to the contrary, that this was a thing that wasn't necessarily actually happening. So the will-they-won't-they tension that defines the romantic comedy genre gets transformed in films like this in what Kelly Oliver playfully dubs the mum-com subgenre. Now, I don't have an American accent. I'll need you to pretend that I do or imagine that I do so mum and com rhyme because it only kind of works with that. So just imagine. So the mum-com subgenre. The question of will they get together can they stay together, shifts when, as Oliver says, romantic pregnancy or pregnancy as romance comes into the picture. And Oliver writes, and this is a direct quote from them, both the female and male characters are transformed into suitable romantic partners through the process of pregnancy. The physical transformations in the woman's pregnant body represent emotional and character transformations in both male and female characters. Rather than the end point of romance, pregnancy and impending parenthood is the beginning point from which romance, love and coupling, if not marriage, ensue. And one of the movie posters for this film really cements that theme of pregnancy as the romance. We see Darcy and Stan standing side by side. His arm is draped intimately over her shoulder and in the center of the poster is a column of hot pink text that reads, they have their plans, they have each other and a little something they weren't expecting. And at the end of that column of text is an image of a giggling baby that is sprawled out on a bed. So the romantic comedy's narrative trajectory that we ordinarily see, which is courtship, romance, marriage, pregnancy, here changes to sex, pregnancy, courtship and marriage. And this is Oliver's take on this. This is the first film that we've looked at so far in this season that explicitly discusses birth control. Darcy openly talks about being on the pill both for contraception and period pain management. And the fact that she got pregnant happened because she forgot to take one of her pills. There is also a sex scene in this film, which is a first for what we've been exploring in these few episodes. And the scene is actually, I think, truly bizarre. Darcy and Stan are having passionate sex in the rain during a camping trip and it's shot, you know, really beautifully with gorgeous lighting, but then it's intercut with images of a camera travelling up what looks like a vaginal canal into the uterus, 
showing sperm and ova coming together and doing their thing to create an embryo which becomes a fetus, etc. It's a very strange combination of the passionate and the clinical of like romantic desire and a very medicalized cold image of reproduction. And when I was watching it, it really reminded me of the scene from the beginning of Look Who's Talking, which features similar in utero imagery. And that film was made just a year after For Keeps. So I began wondering if it had anything to do with advances in things like imaging technologies during that particular period. And I did a little research And it seems that in the late 80s and early 90s, there were major improvements in the resolution of real-time fetal imaging and imaging of sperm and ova for things like assisted reproductive technologies. And as Merritt Lee comments, as a result of such images, egg and sperm cells have become well-known artefacts of popular culture. And this feeds into a growing cultural fascination at the end of the 20th century with these sorts of visualizations of reproductive cells and bodies. And I just find this absolutely fascinating that in just a few decades, we see a swing from the censorship of images of pregnant bodies, like we can't even show a baby bump, as we talked about earlier in this season, to just a few decades later where we get to see literally inside pregnant bodies. And that's not just in a medical context, it's in a teen rom-com of all places. Just totally bizarre and fascinating. This film is also the first one we've looked at this season that has a scene of a character giving birth. So in previous films that we've looked at, birth is simply suggested through a fade to black And we talked about how that turns birth into this unrepresentable thing. So we can't look at it. It should not be seen. And that is what this absence seems to tell us. In this film, however, we see the Molly Ringwald character Darcy in labor. We see her pleading with hospital staff for painkillers and she's sweating and screaming and pushing and grunting with just the huge, enormous effort of birthing a baby. And then we see the newly born baby screaming and covered with amniotic fluid with its umbilical cord still attached. And so when I think back to the miracle of Morgan's Creek, which we looked at a couple of episodes ago, this is just such a hugely dramatic shift in representation. So as you might remember during that period when that earlier film was made, the censorship code in Hollywood stated that birth was not to be shown in any way, labour was not even to be spoken about, and the pregnant body itself was denied representation through a variety of quite strange camera angles that meant we couldn't even see the exterior of a pregnant body. So this is a really, really interesting change in a short few decades. For Keeps also shows a tendency within the pregnancy rom-com genre to present abortion as an option that some people take, but importantly, it's one that never gets taken by the protagonist. So here I'm thinking about very popular films like Juno, where the pregnant teenager goes to have an abortion and there's a last minute change of mind. Pamela Thomas writes of films of this kind, discussing them in relation to films like Knocked Up and Waitress. This is a direct quote from Thomas. These films all celebrate as models 
young, white, American-born women who demonstrate their privilege as consumers and their modern feminine subjectivity through choosing to reproduce. They carry their pregnancies to full term or become mothers, despite explicit statements that their pregnancies are unwanted and despite barriers to autonomy and security. That's the end of the quote. So similarly in For Keeps, Darcy repeatedly says that she is very anxious about her pregnancy for a range of reasons. Money, because of what her family might say and do, but perhaps most importantly because she believes that it's going to impact upon her ability to finish high school and then go on to have a career. And she's also quite worried for her boyfriend. You know, he has plans to go to architecture school the following year in another state. And even though she has these fears, she nevertheless makes the decision to become a parent. And the concerns that I just mentioned are positioned as less important and even able to be completely overcome with just enough effort. Keying into this idea, I think, that women can quote unquote have it all if only they would just try hard enough. Also, there is a sense in the film that her concerns are legitimate, but that her decision to get married and become a mother is more legitimate, perhaps noble even, and ultimately better for her and everyone in her life. So we can see a discourse emerging here that to be a successful and so-called good adult woman, she must embody feminine sacrifice and put her own agenda on hold. I was thinking about it all day. And how make you think sound so bad, you know? And someday we're going to do it. We're, we're going to get married. And I didn't do it. What? I didn't. I tried about ten different times. First I tried to be real, you know, practical about it. And then I tried to be casual about it. And then I tried to pretend like I was in a hurry. But just nothing worked. So now I'm here. So you didn't do it? I know it makes sense to do it. But I just, I didn't feel like I thought I would feel about it, you know? I, I mean, I know it's not a bad thing. But when I think about you and me, I just want to have it. What do you think? I, mean, I can go back. I can go back no to way. my... No way. not this kid, Dars. You and me, a little babrouche with red hair and your lips. We can have everything, right? I mean, how did Hemingway put it? You just have to grab for the gusto. Well, that's a fair commercial. Well, he said too. I love you, Darcy. Oh, do you really think we can do it? Of course we can do it. Our parents did. Everybody's parents did it. We're going to do it anyway. So we'll just do it sooner. Right. What is this, the Sonny and Cher show? So we see throughout the course of the film that her choice to become a mother enables her romantic partnership to grow. The baby's arrival in the world heals previously alienated relationships with both sets of the couple's parents. And actually, her work as a writer is enhanced by her new experience of young motherhood. She can now write about things that she couldn't possibly have written about without being a mother. So while the film shows that there are struggles in the story of teen parenthood, it suggests that all of these problems can be overcome, that family comes first, that preserving the heterosexual relationship is of the utmost importance beyond your personal aspirations, your needs and your desires. As Kelly Oliver puts it, films of this sort are more open about abortion than films of prior decades, certainly. But nevertheless, and I quote from Oliver, they seem to reassure us that although pregnancy may be an accident, babies are not. An interesting side effect of pro-choice rhetoric as it has made its way into popular culture is that if a woman does not choose abortion, then she has chosen pregnancy. That's the end of that quote. 
So films of this sort celebrate a girl having it all, but it doesn't acknowledge that to have it all, she also has to be it all and do it all too. And the exhausting, taxing reality of that is not acknowledged in this film. What we most get a sense of is that the film would like us to feel that it's all worth it, as long as she can become a wife and a mother after all. Isn't that the most important thing in the world? So while having stories about teenagers who decide to keep their pregnancies is, of course, absolutely okay and great, it's interesting to note just how dominant that story is. So in the films that we've looked at in this little series, teen pregnancy either ends in a terrible punishment, such as death, or the rehabilitation of the girl into the category of respectability through self-sacrifice and heterosexual coupling. And it's interesting to note that these two extremes dominate our cultural imagination about this topic. And in some ways, I think, even though they seem very different, these two narrative endpoints have quite similar aims. And to me, that aim is to fix the problematic teen girl who has strayed from the path. In the first instance, this fix comes through simply eliminating her from the story altogether and providing a cautionary tale. The balance of power is restored in that case. It seems to say bad things happen to badly behaving girls. And then in the second instance, on the other end of the spectrum, the fix comes through making sure that the girl's risky behaviour is curbed by confirming her status within a socially acceptable feminine role, roles like wife and mother. She's put back on track towards an appropriate feminine adulthood, and in the case that she can't be recuperated, that she can't be put back into her appropriate box, she of course must be punished. In the case of the girl's recuperation into acceptability, it's also really important to note that she has to do that work of transformation herself. It doesn't come with help from an outside force like a partner or teacher or parent. So we see a kind of neoliberal working of self-transformation, adaptation, individualised and totally resting on her shoulders only. So what I'm sort of trying to say here is that there appears to be a very strong investment in telling the pregnant teen story in this particular way. We're invested in this and it is a dominant way of telling the teen pregnancy story. And while other resolutions in the stories of this genre are certainly out there, they are not nearly as common. And these stories about being good or bad, whatever that might mean, may tell us a lot more about the anxieties that adults project onto teenagers, more so than about the material realities that actual girls face or the practices that they actually engage in. Thank you so much for listening to the Teen Screen Feminism Podcast. This episode was researched, written and presented by me, Athena Bellis. It was edited by Claire Gorn. You can find me on Instagram at teenscreenfem and anywhere you get your podcasts. Next time we'll be travelling into the 90s. Hope to see you then. <laughs>